Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. saying anything or I feel like I have nothing to say which is quite unlike me I'm wondering if it's from so many days in a row from taking Seroquel or it could also be that today I spent some time typing up some stuff on the computer to say goodbye to my job that I left so that might have been a little bit exhausting as well plus I did a few body weight squats and maybe I tired myself out a little even though I didn't do very many I'm not very strong so I'm not sure what it is um, and this morning I drove to my naturopath to get this kit and it's a urine test and it's organic acids test and there's other tests that can be done with this sample as well but I think the one he suggested I do is organic acids and it has to be done when I'm in extreme distress. And so after I had this recent event of distress, I emailed him and asked him about this test. I think it's about $1,000, but the kit is free from him. So I guess I wait till next time, which could take up to eight months before I'm in that extreme distress. So now, not only do I have to remember about my sap strap and getting myself to a safe place to experience the inner turmoil and just sort of surrender and wait it out, I have to remember to utilize this sample kit and send it away And I'm not sure exactly what it tests for, but certain metabolites could indicate what is going on for me metabolically when I'm in extreme distress. And that could be helpful in having some sort of individualized nutrition or uh, supplement or vitamin or treatment protocol of some kind. I don't know, I'm not a doctor. And I didn't get to talk to him today. So now at least I have this for next time and I can decide if I want to do it and pay the money to get that test done and the information. Had I had this kit before, I might have been able to do it this time, but I didn't have the kit. So now at least I have the kit. 
So I went and I did that, which was something that got me outside and it was something planning for the future to try to figure out possibly how to prevent this from happening besides the lifestyle changes I'm going to make. So hopefully I never need this because I never get in that kind of distress again, but I likely will. So I picked up this kit, so that's for next time. And then I spent time doing those documents and it was quite a few hours on the computer and I just sort of felt like tired from the computer. And I was noticing that in my iCal, a lot of the tasks that I have to do are computer-based tasks. And then some of them are doing things around the house and then some are actually going out and seeing people. But I feel like I need more tasks that are actions in reality instead of just fiddling around with files in a computer. So hopefully in the next couple of days I can get some of the computer tasks done and then work towards being outside more and also tidying up my place before I leave. Another thing I didn't mention but when I saw my doctor the other day it almost sounds like at some point she might be willing to change my diagnosis from bipolar disorder to PTSD. Right now I have bipolar disorder diagnosis as well as PTSD, but it almost sounded like she just might get rid of the bipolar disorder diagnosis, though it's probably a little bit too soon for that. It would be nice to be able to be off lithium and then have it changed. But I'm gonna have to do a lot of work on my lifestyle as well as nutrition and and processing some things. And I actually watched the movie documentary Crazy Wise yesterday because I got a link for a sneak peek because I contributed to the campaign for fundraising and I won't say anything about it because it's too early to say anything even though I'm not gonna publish this at all until probably long after it's out anyway. And I'll just say it was pretty good. They made some really good points. I wish they could have had even more, but I guess there's only so much you can put into a certain length of film. Just. I've talked about this stuff for hours upon hours upon hours and it would be very hard to make a documentary and select exactly what to put in to illustrate the stories that were being outlined. So it was good. I've been soaking my feet in Epsom salts. I don't have a bathtub so I've just been using a cooler actually. And I do that at night before bed and it maybe is helping a little bit because I've slept better the last two nights.
I'm hoping on Wednesday to try to go to sleep without Seroquel. So I don't like to take it for more than two weeks. I guess this is what happens to my brain after 10 days on Seroquel. Which could be a nice reprieve, but it's not something I would want to experience on a daily basis. I couldn't imagine being on this stuff all the time. I need to decide how I'm getting to California and I need to clean my car and get some travel insurance. There's just a bunch of things that I need to do after I get this computer stuff done. I'm not really liking being alone right now and I'm not really liking nighttime. Just, it's kind of creepy. I'm ready for the days to be longer. This is the most uninteresting I've felt. in a long time, probably since I was on Seroquel before, when they over-medicated me last year. And I'm not even over-medicated right now, but I'm on that extra med. But like I said, it could be good in order to just not think beyond much of anything right now. So it might be a good test for me to see how fast my brain comes back to actually thinking a little bit beyond numbness. If I have to take it all the way up until I get to California, I think that's okay too. My brain does bounce back. I don't really believe in permanent brain damage induced by medication, but it can perhaps have tougher withdrawal effects if I stay on it longer. The longer I stay on it, the more likely I am to have some sort of dependency to it, which would cause more suffering coming off of it, which sort of negates 
some of the benefit of being on it to reduce suffering if it's going to cause more to come off of it. So we'll see how it goes. In the spirit of uninterestingness, I will sign off and perhaps tomorrow won't be any more interesting than today. If it's not, I might just skip the video. Like I said, this next part is more about embodiment than really making so many abstractions about things. So I gotta get at my to-do lists, which is also another good reason not to make too many videos. Trying to get prepared to go away for a little while. I think it's day nine or eight on Seroquel, and I'm at the park as you can see. And it's interesting, I not only feel like I don't have anything to say, I also don't even feel like making videos, which is something I've been doing for seven or eight months. So to me it's interesting how ten days on a little bit of Seroquel is kind of destroyed my motivation. And again, I think it's okay right now. Because I need to take a break from overthinking things and do more of just getting stuff done. So today, so far, I was organizing my kitchen and taking out some of the items that I wouldn't want someone else using. So I did quite a bit of that, and then I just sort of felt done with it, like I needed to get outside for a while, so here I am. I am starting to feel excited about California since yesterday. Excited for a change of scenery. And I still have quite a few things to do before I go, so as long as I do a couple of things per day, I should be ready to go in the nick of time. I have to decide how I'm going to get there, I have to get insurance and all that stuff. So maybe I'll make another video later when I'm at home, but if I don't, this is a short one so maybe I'll combine it with 
if I say anything tomorrow and the next day. A couple things about today. Again, my brain isn't super thinky, but that's a good thing. And last night was the first night I took half of a Seroquel instead of a whole one. And I took a whole one every day for probably 12 days. So the 13th night I took half and I'll take half again tonight. And then after that, I will perhaps try without the Seroquel to go to sleep because I've been sleeping just fine. And every night I've been doing some coherence breathing with my heart rate monitor, chest strap, and the app, as well as soaking my feet with Epsom salts. Sort of a little ritual I've developed and it seems to make me feel calm and just go to sleep. And I usually drink mugwort tea out of a nice mug. And I actually grow mugwort out in the yard because when I was in Santa Barbara six years ago, somebody gave me a mugwort leaf and he said, put this under your pillow, you'll have nice dreams. And so I took it and I went back to the hostel that night and I did put it under my pillow. And when I was falling asleep, as soon as I sort of fell asleep, I felt myself going through a time warp. It was like, like it was like the weirdest thing out of a movie, like warp drive or hyperspeed or light speed being engaged in a spaceship and sort of having that sensation too of accelerating like that. And I'm pretty quickly just jerked awake like oh my gosh like what the hell and then I thought that was strange but then I put my head back down and when I did it did the same thing when I started to fall asleep it just went like like it felt like I was in a spaceship accelerating and so again I just jerked awake like what the hell so I took the mugwort leaf out from under my pillow and just placed it beside the bed and didn't want to participate in that. And then oddly enough, when I got home and I was at that point kind of manic and I was going to this organic grocery store in an adjacent city and the lady there was this cute Asian lady and she was trying to sell me this green powder stuff for, for a tea and she was trying to tell me what it's called, but she was saying it in a way that I couldn't understand, the way she was pronouncing it. And I think she eventually wrote it down, and she wrote down mugwort, and I was like, what the hell? So I bought the tea, and it might have been that time or another time I went there that she told me she has mugwort plants, or it's kind of like a weed, really. And she said that she would give me some 
I called her on her cell phone, so I did, and she did end up giving me the plants. And I planted it in a bunch of different locations around the property, and it's kind of funny because this one place I planted it between the two houses, there's like a row of mugwort, like two feet wide by 15 feet long. Right now it's all dead and dried up because it's winter time, but it comes back every year. And then I planted it behind the house, this big, long, same thing of mugwort. And then all in the front yard, it kind of takes over. But last year, I think it was, I harvested a bunch of it and dried it and kept it for tea. And so, long story short, I have my own mugwort tea. And when I move, I should be sure to take some mugwort with me. So, mugwort tea, mugwort story, taking half a Seroquel. I also, in the mail, got my medical ID. So I put PTSD and bipolar one. I don't know if you can see that. And then on the back, my name and my medication and then see iPhone medical ID because iPhone has a feature to put your medical ID in there. So it's on the emergency call screen. So I have more information in my iPhone medical ID. I talk about my advanced directive, my representation agreement, where those are on my phone in case I forget. And I also say, remind me to take a Seroquel PRN if I'm scared and confused and a bunch of stuff like that, my contacts. And so I have this for my trip. I may or may not wear it, uh, but I decided to buy it either way. And I also cleaned my car a little bit, even though it looks like I might not be driving. My car's really old, and so I actually today booked a train ticket, because I've taken the train there twice before. Very long trip, 30 plus hours but I find it quite nice and relaxing. So it was cheap too, it was like 125 bucks. Whereas a flight would be about 250 and the train, the benefit of the train is that I can cancel less a 20% fee. Whereas if I book a plane ticket, I can't change it. And there are a few things that might cause me to need to leave a little bit later. So I think this was the best thing to do right now. I feel good about that. And I can always cancel it and fly if I want. Or if I end up getting a new car or something, which is pretty unlikely, then I can always decide to drive. And driving would be a lot more expensive, though I might decide to buy a cheap car down there temporarily. I have to find out if I can do that, if I can insure it. I don't know how that works. 
So I can take the insurance off my car and put it as storage insurance, possibly. Save some money that way. And I also looked into a little bit of stuff around subletting my place because I might be able to get a little bit of money from that. Even though I don't own this place, so most of it I wouldn't get. I would just get a little bit because it's my furniture and stuff. But could be helpful. So still lots to do. Still lots to think about. thinking about a few other things as well. I have a busy day, but I wanted to make a really quick video because I don't think I made one yesterday. And last night was the first night I didn't take any Seroquel. The night before that, I took half and the night before that I took half and before that I was taking one a day for about a week or so and even more of it before that for a couple days because of my crisis and last night I didn't sleep the greatest I woke up at 3 in the morning and I felt like I wasn't sleeping fully at that point for a while but I was sleeping for sure and then I woke up around 6 30 it could have been two because I went out and I was sitting on a patio with some friends and it was quite cold and I actually didn't feel cold because there was a heater but when I got home I actually felt quite chilled so I actually slept with my heating pad on so I think my sleep was just a bit messed up in general from that as well. And going to sleep a little bit later, because I got home and I still did my whole foot soak thing and the Coherence breathing app. And after using that app for a number of months on and off, I actually finally figured it out. I reduced the breath rate from five breaths per minute to four, which is actually the lowest the app can do. And as soon as I did that, all of a sudden now I'm in coherence most of the time. Whereas before I was hovering at like 50 or 60% coherence. And there's a TED talk on this coherent stuff and some things on YouTube about when we're breathing in coherence and the heart is beating in coherence, then the right electricity, the right electric nutrition is sent to the brain. And I haven't done enough investigation to know if that's true or not, but there's people out there who created this coherence breathing technique and app and done all that research so when I see something cool like that and good like that I just trust it because they've done the work so I don't have to 
and I can just benefit from what they've done. But I'm quite excited that now I'm able to do that and actually stay in coherence just by changing the breath rate. So I guess naturally my breathing rate is very shallow. And if I'm at a slightly faster breathing rate, then perhaps my breathing isn't as smooth because it's about smooth breathing and breathing at that rate. So maybe with the faster breath rate, I was having to actually kind of hold my breath or not breathe smoothly to match the breath rate. And as a result, I wasn't breathing in coherence. Whereas now it's pretty much really coherent. And to me, since I've only been able to do that for two days since I changed it, I'm wondering what the results will be as a result of actually being able to be in coherence in the app instead of actually sort of struggling to be in and out of coherence. So I'll definitely be using it more, I think, now that I figured out that it's not that I'm having trouble staying in coherence, it's just that I was having the wrong breathing rate. And so perhaps that will be good for my brain. And even today, this morning, I noticed after not taking the Seroquel last night, even though it was just half, which isn't very much, I already feel more clear. And I like that. At the same time though, it could put me at risk for distress at some point. But again, I'd rather be clear 330 some odd days of the year and not clear on Seroquel or something else just a few days of the year instead of taking it daily just to hopefully not go into distress. I'd rather be in distress and clear versus not clear and maybe not go into distress. It still doesn't guarantee that I wouldn't go into distress and I don't want to take it for a whole year to find out. So like I talked about before, I probably have six and a half to eight and a half months until it happens again if I don't take the Seroquel. So what do I need to do in the meantime? How do I need to design my life? in order to not have distress. And I was thinking about how the distress is sort of old soundscapes. And I've been thinking about this idea of soundscapes since watching half of the first season of the show, The OA on Netflix. And I'm not gonna watch the rest of it for a while because my brain needs to settle down from these big ideas that it can cling on to and then actually extrapolate and create soundscapes of future prophecy based on that. Seeing beyond some of the ideas that people come up with in, in shows that are like fantasy and not really real can still really pull on my brain neurons and glial cells to make connections beyond even the show which 
of course are not necessarily true right now at this moment but they can be seen as possibly true in the future and that feels like prophecy whether or not it is prophecy it feels like prophecy because it's not true now it could be true in the future we have to wait and see it's a projection of that extrapolation and it can be kind of scary so the soundscapes created by the producer of the show the OA can actually get my brain extrapolating soundscapes that can be interpreted as fearful so becoming afraid of those sounds that my brain creates based on the seeing beyond of whatever it is that somebody else created and that's again why I have trouble with watching TV or even watching that program vaccines revealed because I can extrapolate beyond it seems and it's somewhat terrifying and I definitely got in touch with old soundscapes in my recent crisis and I'm wondering how do I prevent those soundscapes or maybe what are those soundscapes trying to tell me that if I listen then I won't be needing them anymore or I won't be afraid of them anymore and I was watching an interview of Sean Blackwell by Katie Motram and he was talking about holotropic states and I'm thinking that these holotropic states and I haven't looked into that too much even though it's probably something I should be looking into because I experienced that when I first was in a two-month altered state of consciousness and it's not just one altered state it was so many different altered states and when I finally got to the point of handcuffing myself and just staying still and laying there I experienced my consciousness leaving my body but in a way it's almost like my brain got in touch with other soundscapes so maybe consciousness didn't leave my body as much as other soundscapes of other consciousnesses like other beings like a bird or a homeless person I was able to tune into that in my brain in my mind in my mindscape and I was just laying there but I experienced all these other things and what I'm trying to say is it seems like our brains can tune into other soundscapes of other people other beings past lives etc etc and this is something that's not necessarily new but when we think about it in terms of soundscapes and how these soundscapes move us and we're usually moved by the soundscape of our conditioned programmed ego personality consciousness but as soon as something else comes in besides that which can happen when that breaks down or gets scrambled well then it's very confusing like how do we move about in our habitual pattern when those other soundscapes are coming in and so then it's hard to move about in our habitual pattern and then we're acting differently and then people think we're strange when really we've just decoupled from the soundscape of our regular ego personality which is a very narrow limited band of sound to be tuning into and then when we really think about it 
these sounds come from within us. Even if we start to connect with other sounds, they come from within. And what I talked about before was when we have a clear, quiet, silent mind, the soundscape is very subtle and it actually comes from perception in the moment by seeing. And I'm a very visual person now, like I need to have things out where I can see them because that's actually what prompts me to use it or move it or whatever it is. So instead of being moved by the abstraction about the thing because I'm actually thinking about the thing. So it feels like to me people who go through this sort of trans-conscious, map-conscious experience are being remapped to actually perhaps become more visual. And when we're more visual, it creates different soundscapes than when we're caught in the soundscape of our ego programming. And when we really think about it, what is fear is actually just sound. And part of this holotropic state or decoupling from the ego soundscape that we're used to, when the process happens that we're perceiving different soundscapes, it's actually a change in perception. So perception has changed from the ego soundscape to infinite soundscapes, maybe. Soundscapes of different times, and it's actually showing us something that Krishnamurti says, that all time is now. It's not... past, present, future as we think. It's all right now. But the point about the soundscapes, even though there's so many different things happening in, say, so-called psychosis or trans-consciousness, it's showing us that we're not that soundscape of the ego. So that one's not correct. doesn't mean that these other ones that are happening are, are correct, but it's showing us that we're not just that ego soundscape and we can't act just based on that. And again, it's trying to get us to act on a different soundscape. And perhaps those are all confused until we get in touch with the soundscape of perception in the moment. And it could be that we have to learn to kind of negate those other soundscapes It's quite fascinating and I guess I don't have enough time to talk about it right now but it's interesting how this is my first day not taking the Seroquel last night and my brain is already wanting to talk it's already creating the soundscape of perception and, and talking about these things in crisis when I was exposed to these other soundscapes of total weirdness and I just laid down and surrendered and waited for them to pass in a way that is negating them because say I was having strange soundscapes about aliens I could go outside and be like oh I'm gonna wait for the aliens and then you know run across the street and then get captured by the police and then get whatever so that it's so acting based on that soundscape would create something that I don't want.
I'm almost feeling like this crisis thing for me now is more like having a cold. You just kind of rest for a week and then get on with it. And so this time I was able to avoid the hospital and utilize the support of my community and my family. And I'm wondering if next time the step would be to actually just get through it myself. I have a zap strap if I feel scared for some reason, but I could just take the Seroquel myself and just rest up and not even trouble anybody, potentially. And maybe nobody would even have to know. It would just be, oh yeah, I'm not feeling well, and just get through it myself. And again, that's a way not to create that vision or perception of me as having this mental illness. And this might seem to go against the whole talk about it thing that people talk about or, you know, get help. But it's not, it's actually beyond that in that I've learned to help myself. And I don't even need to go and be like, oh, I'm, I'm thinking this and I'm thinking that, help me. It's like, I'm thinking this and I'm thinking that. I just need to lay down and take this Seroquel and rest and it will pass. It only lasts maximum a week. And the worst of it is actually just a couple of days if I do the treatment protocol that I know works for me which has taken a while to figure out. And I definitely know what doesn't work for me, and if I go to the hospital, there's a higher chance of that happening than if I just handle it myself. And then after that, it would actually be interesting to go through it without any extra medication. And I don't know if that's a good idea or not. But I remember that first time when I was handcuffed, I had my process interrupted. Somebody came and found me and then I was taken to the hospital. Whereas maybe if I would have finished that breathing that I was doing, just naturally, maybe it would have resolved. I don't know if that's true but I seem to be naturally breathing holotropically. And that was possibly part of the healing process, but then it was interrupted. And then since it was interrupted, it was turned into this chronic mental illness. And I think I mentioned that now that I've been able to avoid the hospital, at least this once, I feel more free. I feel like I could move to a small town and not need to be near a major psych ward. So all of a sudden I feel like I have that freedom. Whereas before I would think, well, I need community mental health services and I need a hospital. And maybe I will in the future, but I at least know that it's possible that 
I can just handle it myself. I can trust myself to just lay down and wait it out and not act out of fear, which might be having an extremely fearful soundscape of future prophecy, end of the world happening in my consciousness and just lay there. Not think, well, that means I have to end my life because I'm so afraid. And I watched a video with Jason Silva and he said a quote by someone else, I think, that I am who I think you think I am. And he was talking about it in a certain context, but my mind thought of it in terms of if that's somewhat true, then the more I put myself in front of doctors and people who might pathologize me or, or do pathologize me, I become more of that. And I actually do believe that how we look at somebody affects them. So if somebody's in a very vulnerable, weak, tra traumatized state and they're looked at by a doctor who's going to think they have a mental illness, that's going to create that because that authority figure is putting that onto the person. So that person is affected by the way they're perceived by the other. So in that way, they do become more of who the other thinks they are than who they are themselves. And I heard a story about somebody in forensics who was like very flat and then a student went in there and talked to this person and they were the person who was very flat was very engaged and all the medical personnel and doctors were like what how did that happen like I don't get it but it's how that person is being looked at if the person's being looked at constantly by people who are pathologizing them and they know anything they say is going to be interpreted as pathology they're going to become flat as a defense mechanism. But then if somebody comes in who's perceived as maybe like a friend or an equal or or benign or whatever, all of a sudden this person just changes. So how we look at people actually changes them. And that's why I'm quite against this whole pathologizing people, even though it could be necessary in quite a few cases but the way we look at a person and, and put labels on them is going to turn them into that and even if they are that now if we label them they're gonna stay that whereas if we approach it in a different way then the person is going to move along a different trajectory so that's why I don't believe in the whole, I have a mental illness, but don't stigmatize me story. I would say I was labeled, I was distressed, maybe I did have a mental illness as perceived by doctors, but as perceived by myself and a lot of other people, I don't necessarily have one. So again, that's why it's very important to look at people with unconditional love and non-judgment we are killing each other with our thoughts words and actions but we can also uplift each other
with our thoughts, words, and actions. And I wouldn't even say thoughts as much as perceptions, just being open. And the more open we are, the more chance the person will flower in front of us. So again, safety, lifestyle design, practice, thrive. And I've gotten the safety down pretty good. And so now I'm designing my life in a way that's more free and flowing, which is kind of the way a manic would live. So manic lifestyle design, which is an easier way to embody mania. And I, I'm wondering if it'll actually be more difficult to not be too joyful and thrive. I really feel like more of us need to start thriving. And I have a meeting today about some of the stuff that happened to me in April last year. And then I'm going to an event put on by this guy here with lived experience and there's a number of people that are mental health advocates speaking so I'm curious to hear what they have to say I'm often curious because everybody has something valuable to say for sure 100% and I guess I would like to change the conversation slightly. Doesn't mean that other conversation is wrong or has no place. It just means that I see something a little bit different. And it's possible other people do too if they just take a moment to consider it and ponder it. So yeah, exciting day. Just two weeks after the beginning of a major crisis. And that's the thing too, is next time if I'm able to do it myself, I will try to take video, even though I don't necessarily want to engage too much around what it is that's happening in terms of the soundscapes. Though it might be interesting to capture some of that. Because I also want to show that I can be extremely distressed and extremely out of it. But then back at it. And so I don't want to pretend that I'm always really well, because I'm not. But by having four so-called relapses in a pretty short period of time, just two years, I've come to see for sure that they're temporary, they're short, if handled in the right way. They're extremely terrifying, but I don't need to be afraid of them afterwards and and modify my life to continue to be afraid of it. If I think back on two weeks ago, it was terrifying and it's it's scary. 
to think that that could happen again. But I am going to be modifying my life slightly in order to have less stress because it seems that I see too much. I see a process too much. I really do feel it's acquired highly sensitive personhood and that's why going to California and being somewhere quiet and in nature I think will really be helpful to me and when I come back I'll likely try to have some quiet here as well. I feel kind of irritated, but it's partly my own fault. I got a letter in the mail, and it was to renew something, and it seemed pretty legit, and just wanting to take care of it quickly, I renewed it online, but they also sent an envelope in case I wanted to send a check or put my credit card in the box. And I was a little bit thinking, this is a bit weird, but I didn't think about it too much. It's partly my own bad memory's fault because I kind of remember renewing it in a similar way in previous years. I should have been alerted by the website address though because the dot wasn't .com or like it wasn't a common dot. So I stupidly filled out the form online and put in the payment and put in my credit card and then they sent a confirmation email and the stuff they sent in the confirmation email was kind of weird. And so then I googled this thing and lo and behold it's a scam. And I'm like, damn it! I feel like I'm so good at avoiding scam emails and things but this was, but this sort of got me because it was a piece of mail actually a piece of physical mail with information on it that seemed like it would be legitimate. And so I immediately called my credit card company and then had to cancel the card and they have to send me a new one, which is annoying. What was interesting though is it actually got deleted off my Apple Pay, the card, right away. By the time I hung up the call, it said, oh, this other card has been switched to your default card. So that was interesting about the quickness of the Apple Pay technology. I thought that was pretty cool. So it's annoying. I need to get a new credit card. I need to put the numbers in different in different places that I have automatic payments, which sucks. But I guess I just feel kind of pissed off that I got had by that. And so I immediately googled, this is something a manic would do, and it's more out of fun than actually being mad for real because whatever, I'll dispute the charge, switch my credit card number, kinda sucks. So anyway, I googled, what can I put in that envelope and send back to them? And. A good one that Google came up with was glitter. So they'll open the envelope and there'll be glitter everywhere. And I think that's a good one because it's not going to hurt anybody, but 
it's sort of like a FU and I'm not going to indicate that they actually got me because they did but at least they'll get an envelope full of glitter and if I think of anything else good to put in there I will actually it'd be cool to put some bed bugs in there but I don't know where I would get bed bugs so yeah that'll be my thing my creative way to respond so I'm looking forward to that need to make a trip to Dollarama perhaps and I went to that mental wellness event it wasn't all about mental wellness it was more about also being an athlete and mental wellness so it wasn't your typical mental illness event and there was a naturopath who spoke who talked about the healing power of nature and forest bathing and I often will go to the park where there's lots of big tall trees for even just a short period of time to have it recalibrate me and I find it very refreshing. And she also talked about a study where people that had treatment resistant depression, they were taking antidepressants and then if they took aspirin, 50 to 80% went into remission and these were treatment resistant people. And I was thinking about how a lot of the inflammation would probably cause it so it's hard for the oxygen to get to different parts of the brain if the brain is inflamed or even if the body's inflamed so again I think that has to do with the oxygenation problem and last night was my second night of not taking any Seroquel and I slept fine so it seems that I'm done with the Seroquel for six to eight months at least hopefully and she also said that vitamin D and fish oil and turmeric help with inflammation and there's a lot of other things too. I haven't been taking turmeric but I take vitamin D and fish oil. And she talked about how the gut is the second brain and there's talk about the microbiome and, and probiotics and how important that is. And she was saying that the gut can actually generate just as much dopamine as the brain and 90 to 95 percent of the amount of serotonin as the brain and that gut bacteria can communicate with brain function but I was thinking it was interesting with the whole thing with serotonin and dopamine in the gut I wonder if our guts have become dopamine dominant just as our brains have because so much of our eating is actually for pleasure as opposed to actually nourishing ourselves so a lot of when we feel hungry is actually just a habit it's programmed and it's also programmed as to what we will eat and it's not usually good for us so it could be that how our brains are wired is actually being mirrored in the guts because of the way we're actually feeding our bodies it's the similar way that we're feeding our minds like instant gratification stuff and she talked about how sugar consumption is not good because it suppresses BDNF which is brain derived neurotropic factor and that is what is needed for brain growth so interesting it's talking about the brain growth and growth of new neurons and when we have sugar it suppresses that and I think the sugar is actually related to the dopamine because a lot of it is just addiction to the sugar and then that takes over and then again since the brain is so busy with that sugar addiction dopamine cycle it's not 
growing brain cells. So we'd have to not eat the sugar in order for the brain to be like, okay, well now it's time for the brain to grow because sugar is addictive. And that is dopamine again. And another speaker talked about how we have 70,000 thoughts a day, 70,000 plus. I thought it was 50,000. Maybe now we're thinking 70,000. Now that we have to think about our phones and our social media and stuff. And I'm wondering if I can count my thoughts per day, like actual thoughts. I probably would guess that I think less than 100 thoughts a day. I don't know how to prove that, but I know that from my own subjective experience. I don't hear my own voice. I don't have that soundscape of an ego soundscape, an egoscape. And we're all trying to escape that egoscape and we're a slave to that. And a lot of the ways we do that is through our addictions. It gets the thing to shut up for one second and then we go on to the next. And interestingly, this next speaker, he actually said that we look at our phones for a dopamine hit. So he understands that a lot of what we do is this dopamine dominant getting our dopamine fix, which is what most things in life are designed for. Even our own thoughts are giving us hits of dopamine. So we're addicted to our thoughts and our reactions and the movie What the Bleep Do We Know talks a lot about this. And he also talked about heart rate variability which is something I've been experimenting with somewhat with the Complete Coherence app and the Cardio Mood app. And another speaker talked about exercise as the best way to naturally create those internal brain chemicals that we need and also immersive activity so being immersed in the present moment she brought up the point that depression is usually some kind of regret of the past and anxiety is sort of fear of the future so in a way I don't think she worded it the way I thought about it exactly but the cure, in a way, the cure is the present moment. So anything that brings one into the present moment is sort of the cure for those things. And so why aren't we in the present moment? It's usually because we're out of alignment with the type of present moment that we are designed to move towards naturally as our, our unchanged trajectory of development, unchanged by the thoughts we have recorded and turned against ourselves in our own voice and then actually believe them to be true because we hear ourselves saying them. And she said that when she found her passion, she found a lot of joy in sharing what had changed her life so significantly with other women. And I just like the way she said the sheer joy of sharing that and for myself, I kind of don't know what to do. I don't know how to really create some kind of structured something because once I start doing something, I just forget what the heck I was trying to do. I almost feel like sometimes I'm too present and I forget how to use the past and the future in a way to unfold something. So I just sit down in front of my phone and start talking and don't really remember what I was talking about even yesterday. 
and maybe there's some joy in that that I'm able to use my voice to express some of these things that I've experienced and I've seen and and do so in a way that maybe could be made available to other people that might be helpful in some way and it's not meant to be this is how you do it because we're so we're so caught up in step one step two step three that we lose touch with ourselves because we're so busy following other people I feel like I ever were to do step one, step two, step three. I'd want to do it collaboratively and co-creatively with other people. I wouldn't want to do it just me. It'd be kind of boring. And hopefully I can talk myself silly to the point where I feel like I have nothing else to say and hopefully be more embodied. And again, that sort of is the next step. And even today, I spent the whole day with people, with a friend and then at the clubhouse. And then I was there for like six hours, I think. And and that's really important to be relational as well as embodied. And another speaker showed a quote by somebody, I don't know who the quote was by, but said, be who you needed when you were younger. And that quote is pretty big because I feel like I could have really used some support at certain periods in my life and I didn't necessarily have that support. And so Hopefully I can be that support for other people sometimes. And through this process of self-dialogue, I'm actually learning a lot about the importance of holding people with unconditional love and not having any judgment. And I was, I was pretty decent at that before, but now I see it even more so because I've really felt and experienced the effects of that. And the last presenter was Brent Seal, who is an advocate for mental health and does a lot of public speaking and he has a goal to climb Mount Everest. And he very cleverly in his presentation shared a poem and he said he'd never ever shared a poem out loud on stage before and he hadn't written more than a handful of poems in his journey but his poem was pretty much genius and it was along the themes that I talk about to myself and what makes me feel hopeful about that is that I feel like many of us 
whether we know it or not, actually see things this way. It's just not part of the conversation. Mental health conversation right now is limited to a band that we've been told to feel and experience it and share about it. And the stuff outside of that is usually for when we're in crisis and we're sharing it with a doctor in the psych ward and they're giving us some label and pathologizing us. And then we're afraid to talk about that stuff after because of how it's perceived. And so that's why I've been talking to myself about all these different perspectives to think about it in so many different ways as a way to almost drown out that soundscape of pathology. And I'm not saying there's no place for that soundscape. I'm just saying that in my vision of what I foresee for hopefully myself one day and, and hopefully more people is that we can actually fully recover from needing mental health services. It could be a two-year process or a six-month process or a five-year process and we can actually get to the point where we don't need medications, we're thriving and we're actually finding our unique contribution and gifts throughout the process and when we step into that we no longer need these things to make us feel better because a lot of the anxieties and, and troubles are from past traumas that aren't dealt with and also being re-traumatized by, by the way we've been told to think about ourselves and the way we experience our life as a result of that. And it's way more complicated than that, of course, and people can choose to think about it however they want. I'm just talking about it in so many ways to say that I choose to think about it in infinite ways and however it comes up and comes out in the moment and then I usually forget about it so if I say something and and it's seen as like wow that was just not even close to how it is in somebody else's mind I already forget what I said so it's a about just speaking in the moment and sharing and being open and wondering and being curious about the whole thing, then what's right and what's wrong. And I think that's important in starting to think and learn again. And when we do that and when we open ourselves up to that, we're not so afraid of it because we've thought about it in so many different ways that if some other thing comes into consciousness that's distressing, we have more context through which to hold that and and be with it and allow it to pass versus thinking it, it has so much reality. By talking about the experiences in, in so many different ways and thinking, well, none of them really have reality. Well, then when something else comes along, it doesn't have that much reality either. So there's a lot of different ways even just to think about that. But where I was going with that is that people out there that are already advocates likely have their own perspectives that they can't even share yet. And they might have ones they, if they heard someone else say, they'd be like, wow, yeah, that totally resonates with me. 
they heard another advocate say it, they'd be like, yeah, I've experienced something similar, or yeah, I can see it that way. And then there might be people that haven't necessarily thought about other ways of thinking about it, but as soon as they hear other ways, they might be like, well, yeah, that makes sense, based on my experience. Like, if I say something like, it's important to look at people with unconditional love, like, that's not really that out there, I don't think. And anyone that has been labeled and pathologized might say, I think that it would have been helpful if people weren't judging me and, and, and afraid of me and the way people approach me wasn't, wasn't helpful. And I think a lot of that actually causes the person to go downhill more so than necessary and then it creates more chronicity and more need to actually go through this big recovery process because of the way that it's received in the first place. And I know Dr. Michael Cornwall does a lot on that because he used to work at, I think it was either Soteria House or Diabasis House where it was completely medication free. And this was in the late 70s, before the biochemical imbalance in the brain and the, and the brain disease was accepted as truth. And when that happened, anything that was sort of not in that alignment with that was defunded. So. He worked there for a long time and, and helped people go through the process. And when a person came in, they even selected the person that they resonated with to work with. It was sort of how whoever the person naturally gravitated towards was the main person that would support them through their process. So there's so much there, but what I'm trying to say is that I feel at least with us who've experienced these things, we need to start talking to each other differently about this. I think a lot of the focus is around, let's get so-called normal people to not stigmatize us and, and let's get them to understand more about the mental illnesses when if we focus our energy more on talking about it in the way we want to, in terms of our gifts, and start collaborating with each other, we might be able to build something, even if it's relationships and connection and community, that will help us outgrow the need for us to even say, don't stigmatize us, because we will be beyond the point of caring and if we're able to support each other in a certain way we'll be able to get off some of these medications and I don't know if that's true but 20 years ago so many people were locked up and now they're not locked up but then they're in chemical prisons in the community so it only makes sense that one day people won't need those chemical prisons forever and maybe they won't be told that they have this lifelong affliction that they're going to have to deal with forever. 
because I think a lot of the treatment and the way people are treated and received and perceived unfolds those pathological trajectories. And now that I'm at this point where maybe I'll be able to avoid the psych ward, I'm going to be avoiding being repathologized and and added to that. And anyway, and what I wanted to say with Brent's poem, and I don't want to say it like he said it per se, and I couldn't even if I tried, but he was saying in his poem, what if people with depression had a huge capacity for empathy to the detriment of themselves. And he said, what if people with mental illness simply have special powers? And he said certain things like that. And I was like, yes, because I feel like I talked about the special powers and the special messages and the increased empathy and that in previous videos. So I know that much of what I've said, if he was to hear it, and he probably doesn't even need to, he already feels that way. He already sees it that way. He already sees people with mental health challenges and he doesn't think, oh, we're this depressed person. He sees them as a person with so much empathy that it, it crushes them. And I feel like people don't even necessarily see themselves that way they just think oh something's wrong with me but the empathy is that a person can perceive something else as themselves and when we get in touch with that and we look at the world it's pretty hard not to be crushed and so that's why again I feel like altruism and getting in touch with what we can do to help the world and help each other is so important and we've been made so impotent by our education because we've been trained in such a narrow band of whatever it is we're trained to do and then we get there and we're like this is success and this is boring and I get bored of doing the same thing all the time in most cases because we've forgotten how to learn because we've trained ourselves to just memorize ourselves into being a professional of some kind and then the ones that can't do up that need the professionals to help them yet we're not using our brains properly at all obviously but i thought it was really cool that he did that in a poem and i was saying to somebody that i was there with that if he were to just get up there and say people with psychosis have magical powers people with depression are just very empathetic People would look at him and think, we need to take you to the psych ward because you need another label tacked onto you. But if you do it in a poem and you say, what if, and you get people thinking. So I'm wondering if I should just convert all my videos, all 170 almost, to poems. I need to go through and watch them and just re-record them and make them poems. But anyways, I didn't do that. I didn't do it as poems. I did it as me speaking. So I probably just seem like a crazy person and I am and I'm okay with that because I don't think I'm mentally ill. I don't think I have a problem in my brain that is degenerating, but I definitely know that I'm a crazy person and I'm very proud of that. And some of this is just 
that only a crazy person would say. And then I wonder, what is my dream? And I thought, I want to know what the universe is dreaming. So I hope that if I ever do share this, it's seen as just sort of poetry without the poetry. It's me provoking my own brain to think about things differently and not necessarily saying things that are provable or scientific or it's from a domain that we all have access to, but we can't really measure it. And, and the thing is that often they talk about people don't get help. Somebody mentioned in the evening that, that two out of three people that have a mental health concern don't get help. And I was thinking, the help sucks. Who wants that help? Who wants to go see a doctor who's gonna just label them and give them a drug? Like, who wants that? Nobody does. The fact that people have to wait till they're just in such crisis and emergency before they get help, usually by being dragged in by the police or some family member who's afraid and get turned over to being labeled and pathologized. and. And the trajectory that puts a person on is just totally off and so I feel like the help has to be better and we have to help each other and make the help suck less because I avoided the help last time I avoided that help that sucks that has a big chance of making things worse. And I actually got some of my records from my psych wards days, the three that I had in the last two years. And luckily I avoided this fourth one. And I was reading some of it and it's just not very nice. So I was actually thinking in my next video of reading some of it, but doing it sort of maybe rap style, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to do that or not, but I might because I think it's important to have some fun with this. Be a little bit of a disturber. Disturber in chief. And that's harnessing some of the manic energies, even though I'm not manic, but getting in touch with that playfulness and maybe playing back at some of it a little bit and not taking it so seriously. And that would just be an experiment. I. So yeah, stay tuned for Release of information. Final report.
33-year-old female presented herself at the hospital with complaints of severe anxiety symptoms. The patient reports that she feels onset of psychosis. She claims that she has got the same one to kill her mom, but has no one to do it. She complains of multiple diffuse body pains due to the intensive anxiety symptoms. She is not able to check her email. <laughs> it seems that the patient was quite stable up until five days prior to admission, or even three days prior to the admission, but suddenly started having panic attacks. The patient described that during those anxiety attacks, she feels aliens around and had strange sensations in her own body, not somebody else's. And aliens tell her, don't say anything about the aliens. The patient reported reference delusions about her having feeling that if she would say anything about the aliens, they would somehow harm her niece or other children. Due to those paranoid and referenced allusions, she's got ongoing anxiety symptoms with occasional acute panic attacks as well, chronic head of the ability to sleep, depressed mood. During the admission, the patient was quite disorganized in the thought process. She had tangential thinking. She also reported that her mom is an imposter. She said that she is afraid to die at the age of 33, like Kurt Cobain. She also described somatic delusions that feels like homeless person in her own urine. I do not remember saying that part about the urine. The patient has been sedated with lorazepam in the emergency room. It seems the patient was not against the treatment and has been cooperative with the physicians and the nurse. On the interview, she presented as a young female looking somewhat disheveled and withdrawn. It should be noted that the patient has been sedated with lorazepam during the interview. Her eye contact was reduced. Her speech was soft and monotonous. The patient was fully oriented to time and person and did not have involuntary movements. Did not have tremor or sweating. She reported all the above. Paranoid and referenced delusions. And possibly had some auditory hallucinations. When she described her hearing aliens inside her head. At the same time, she had partial insight into the psychotic nature of her condition, as she reported that her psychosis had started. Her mood was depressed. She did not have suicidal ideation. The patient claimed she's been compliant on medication. There was no alcohol or substance abuse history. There were no medical problems. It should also be noted that in spite of temporal lobe epilepsy-like symptoms of the somatic delusions, the patient had an EEG in 2015, which was completely normal. Assessment, 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 acute psychotic episode with paranoid delusions, reference delusions, and auditory hallucinations. Due to the rapid onset of the symptoms and the acutely depressed mood, but presence of the agitation, the patient probably got either depressive episodes with psychotic features or mixed episodes with psychotic features. At the same time, it's possible that the patient has got schizoaffective disorder. Bipolar type with psychotic episode. Recommendations, recommendations, recommendations. 
discontinue all the antidepressants, including sertraline and trazodone. The patient describes having akesthesia symptoms on olanzapine. I will start increasing Seroquel gradually by 100 milligrams per day until the antipsychotic dose of at least 500 milligrams per day. Continue with lithium 600. Do CBC, urea, electrolytes, liver function test, and lithium level. And I said, no, I don't want that Seroquel tapered up to 500 milligrams, you... <sighs> doesn't say I said no. It doesn't say I said no. It doesn't say I want to switch doctors. It doesn't say, it doesn't say, it doesn't say. It should be noted that urine toxic screen was negative, negative. And here, some of the truth comes out. This is the second doctor. This is the second doctor. Progress on the psych ward. She continued to be quite disorganized in her thoughts and behavior for the first 72 hours because she was put on the medication. She said no to. She said no, and she knew it would make her worse. And frequently demanding for a change of her MRP. There's the truth. Demanding to change doctors as she had known the writer and was under her care in the past. The medications at the time of admission were reviewed and was started on Seroquel with gradually increasing dose up to 500 milligrams. However, the patient could not tolerate for more than 300 milligrams. She became extremely drowsy and unable to open her eyes. When she was gone up to 400 milligrams, she reports in the past also she did not do very well on antipsychotic medication. The lithium was increased to 750 milligrams and the Seroquel was decreased to 300 milligrams and subsequently 200 milligrams. Thank you, second doctor, for saving my life. Thank you, second doctor, for saving my life. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Although she could not sleep for the first few days, subsequently she was able to start sleeping and interacted well with fellow clients. Within a couple of weeks, she was settled on the ward when usually she's out within eight to 10 days. Because I had iatrogenic illness, doctor-induced illness. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.